Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT podcast. Your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. What does it mean to be culturally competent? How do we practice cultural humility? And how do we better understand to working with immigrant populations and client systems very different from our own background? These are questions that systemic therapists, both young and old, continually struggle with. And who better to help us answer that than family therapy pioneer, Dr. Celia Falikov. Large portion of her work has been working with Latino populations, immigrant populations in the United States. In her book, Latinos and Family Therapy, Celia writes, even when freely chosen, the transition of migration is replete with loss. There's a loss of language, separation from loved ones, the intangible emotional vacuum left in the space where home used to be, the loss of community, and lack of understanding of how jobs, schools, banks, and hospitals work. Immigrants are many times rendered vulnerable, isolated, and susceptible to individual and family distress. Celia herself, an immigrant from Argentina. She has an amazing story of, of perseverance. So happy to bring this to you today. Someone I've never met in person, but had wanted to talk to a long time. And I often say the Pioneer series would not be complete without talking to people like Celia. She's internationally known family therapist, author, teacher, and clinician. She's a licensed clinical psychologist, currently a clinical professor in the Department of Family and Preventative Medicine, and directs at the University of San Diego in California, and directs a free clinic for immigrant clients. She's a former president of AFTA, the American Family Therapy Academy, a clinical fellow in the AAMFT. She's pioneered many writings on multiculturalism and working with immigrant populations, including the widely praised Latino families in therapy that I mentioned, and also multiculturalism and diversity in clinical supervision. So happy to bring this to you. And after the interview with Celia, I'll be back with some exciting news for the AMFT podcast coming up in the spring of 2021. All right, Celia. Welcome to the AAMFT podcast. I have been wanting to talk to you for a long time and I'm really looking forward to this. So if you've listened to the show, the first question is always, and you have a very unique background. So tell us, because we're going to be talking about cultural competency and really learning a story and your journey and your impact on the field of family therapy. Tell us about your cultural background, your family of origin story, and then what drew you to the family therapy field? Okay. Uh, thank you very much, Eli, for having me. 
Uh, it's also my pleasure to talk with you and the great work you're doing. I agree with you that students really like uh, to hear podcasts. Um, so who am I? Um, although I grew up as simply Celia Hayes, that's everybody knows me in my past at Celia Hayes. My complete name is actually Celia Aide Hayes Sisman de Falikov. That sounds like a very long name. Two Latin first names and two Jewish last names. Argentina being the country with the largest Jewish population, you would guess right by my name that I grew up in a Jewish enclave in Buenos Aires in Argentina. I am the first one born in Argentina. Uh, both my parents were immigrants from Eastern Europe. Uh, my mother was one of four children from Romania at age 14, 15. Uh, my father, one of eight, we now think is Ukraine at age four. They were escaping ethnic and religious persecution and death uh, of the pogroms and the poverty of those uh, Jewish settlements. So from childhood on, I knew that sociopolitical and socioeconomic events shaped crucial decisions, such as migrating to unknown and very far away lands, suffering many losses with the hope of survival and perhaps some gains. So I grew up in a very large three-generational family and lived in a highly collectivistic world of my neighborhood. One block away to the right were my maternal grandparents, one with you know, one block to the left was part of my father's family. My uncles visited almost every day. I loved them and I felt loved by them. I also was very close to my grandparents. But I was the first one to have any education, even grade school. And that was a sort of separation. You know, I spoke a different language and I was learning many things that I could not share. So I went through tremendous contradictions as an adolescent, what I now call roots and wings. You know? uh, I started going to high school away from the Jewish enclave and began to feel also, you know, probably what I might call today a profound sense of shame about being a discriminated minority. I wanted the roots, but also wanted the wings to get away. You're so youthful. I, I know you, I don't want to, to date you, but you, you kind oh, of understanding oh, where we are in our kind of political, uh, cultural context of Argentina. Argentina. Uh, oh, yes, yes. I, I'm talking about the 1950s now. And uh, so I grew up during a military dictatorship. That's how I spent my adolescence. I think that also shaped me, you know, in terms of, of today, and I maybe will go back to that. But so I was saying that education became, uh, opened a different world for me. Uh, that's how I met my husband in Argentina who was studying medicine. So in my early 20s, and now we're in this, in the 60s, um, I migrated to the U.S. with him. Uh, he was coming uh, for postgraduate training, and um, now I think for the first time I could really have even more empathy and respect for the immigrant journey of my parents and my grandparents. And where did you, and, when you came from Argentina, where did you land in the States? Chicago. Yes. Chicago. And yeah. it was a gift. I loved being so many years in Chicago. Um, I had to learn English. I had a, you know, had to learn a different lifestyle, different values, and the loneliness of just being there with my husband and no family. I worked as a file clerk, as an EKG technician at the hospital at night. I had no not finished my undergraduate degree. 
uh, which was in, in any case very different, the, the educational system in Argentina. So at night, I went to Roosevelt University in Chicago, had to learn civics, uh, American geography, American history. But I was able to take the ERE and the Miller Analogies test, so I was able to apply for graduate school while I was still working full-time. Now, you, you talk a lot about the immigrant experience, so you were very close to your family of origin. You followed the American dream. You came over with your husband. What was it like to leave your family back in Argentina? Well, you know, it was the family and the entire community. I had, I think maybe in my first book on Latinos, there is a section that then I do not repeat in the second book, but uh, you you bring back a, an image very engraved in my mind. I, I left like an old immigrants did in a mercantile boat that uh, left from the port of Buenos Aires and arrived in South Carolina. And, uh, but during that uh, goodbye, that going away, there were uh, enormous numbers of friends, both of my husband's and mine, uh, that followed the boat on the pier until you couldn't see it anymore. And we were all just sobbing. You know, like like a movie sad. almost, you're painting yes. a picture. Yes, it was so sad. And they would also be shouting things. Don't don't forget us. Don't forget uh, Argentine beef. Don't forget to drink mate, you know, which is a typical. So they were just saying goodbye, but at the same time, don't, you know, don't become an American. Always remember us. And it was so painful. You know, I don't know how many days I cried. Wow. And so, um, so I have a deep empathy for that transition. So you got here and you got your undergraduate degree. Your husband was a physician. You were learning the language, learning the culture in a, a great place for Chicago, which as I call my second home. So how did you first, because this is the time now we're in the 60s, right before the yes. golden age of family therapy. It wasn't even really a profession at the time. When is the first time you learn systemic language or you start thinking this is what you're going to do for a career? Well, let me just say for one second, something about that transition to school. You, you know, I never got an undergraduate degree. So I am one of those strange people that I think it was possible at that time to first get an, a, a master's in, in clinical psychology from Loyola University in Chicago. And then it was enormously uh, privileged, I think, uh, to be able to get a United States public health endowment for four years to go to the University of Chicago. And it was an incredibly important marker and one that inspired the rest of my professional life. So it doesn't really start with systemic thinking in a traditional clinical way. Um, being in human development with a specialty in clinical psychology, a human development was a very unique program, a committee of four disciplines, biology, anthropology, sociology, and psychology. And, and this was the beginning of my realization that you need a multidisciplinary approach to understand most human issues. So I learned to think developmentally, culturally, and socially. And so that was how I started to think. Uh, and my dissertation there, you know, the title was Moving from a Diet to a Triad. And what I studied was how a couple 
becomes a family and and interviewed 21 pregnant women i was the 21st one and uh, uh during that transition so i think i began to think systems then you know because i was going from the individual to the family but and i was thinking contextually because of the anthropology and sociology so I actually became more of a systemic therapist in London uh, because in the early 1970s I was able to have to spend a postdoctoral year at the Tavistock Clinic in London and there I was in a psychologically oriented program we had a grand rounds as part of that and the cases they were presenting uh, showed a separation of the child with the therapist uh, the child with the a, a, a separation of this way let me explain it better um, the child was an individual therapy with a therapist and the parents or usually the mother were uh, seeing the social workers and usually uh, the mother was always scapegoated and blamed. Uh, the mother became the bad mother and the therapist became the good mother. I felt very disturbed by the split. Where And so, and I think perhaps because I had my own two-year-old that I was feeling guilty about leaving her to be studying and working. So I just... It wasn't right for me to, to split the children from the parents in the therapy. What you're talking about is so indicative of our, our MFT field. If people that listen to the show understand our, our classic models, our strategic and structural models, there was a lot of this mother bashing going all the way back to the schizophrenogenic mother and you know things that we know today are, are not true but you felt it at Tavistock a wonderful place we've had guests on the show like Jill and David Scharf talk about their time there so here you are at this very furtive place for psychotherapy but the way they were doing the work it just didn't feel right to you and you might have yes. not had this systemic language but it didn't feel yes. like the way you saw helping families yes and and you're completely right Tavistock is a fantastic place and I went back as a visiting professor in 2001 and they had a systemic they had one of the components it's a systemic program and one, you know, with with an emphasis on culture and race. And so Tavistock has also evolved a lot. So while I was there, it was a very, very rich year for me. I became acquainted with the anti-psychiatry movement and was going every Monday night to meetings at their Philadelphia house with Artie Lang, with David Cooper. But my lucky star shone again there because Sal Minuchin came to the Tavistock on a mini sabbatical and I began to follow him. And okay, time, time out for a second. The, uh, the amazing history of Argentinian, Argentina, Argentinian family therapist on the field is amazing. You, uh, Sal Mnuchin, Chloe Madonis, did you know uh, who Sal Mnuchin was before he visited that year or, or no? No. No. Wow. No. I started meeting him at the cafeteria and, but so, and I, I started asking, can I attend the child psychiatry meetings behind the one way mirror? And uh, because I wasn't in that program. And so, and they were just child psychiatrists. And so they said, okay. You can you can go there and be quiet, be silent. You can't participate. You can be an observer. And I, you know, saw him showing videotapes of anorexic adolescents being interviewed with the parents over a lunch hour, something that shocked the young child psychiatrist at Tavistock. But 
I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I thought it was also marvelous to have this in vivo, you know, supervision where you actually saw it rather than talking about it. And so that was very attractive to me. And I asked Mnuchin where I could learn in Chicago. And he told me that he thought Irving Borstein had started a program on family systems at the Institute for Juvenile Research in Chicago. IJR, yep. IJR, IJR. So when we returned to Chicago, I became a student first, and and while I was working in a community health center with Latino clients, well, you know, if you've been in Chicago, that's Pilsen, uh, the neighborhood. And at that time, it was already, you know, we're talking about uh, mid-1970s, it was already, a, 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 you know, largely a Latino immigrant place. So I stayed in the family systems program at IGR for nine years uh, as a student, as a trainer, and later on as a director. Uh, there I got to know all the luminaries of those times, Carl Whitaker, Mary Bowen, uh, Virginia Satir. So it was, you know, incredibly uh, important to me, and I became a dyed-in-the-wool family therapist with any, you know, yeah, that is a place that uh, the Institute of Juvenile Research that doesn't get maybe in our textbook and history books as much credit as it deserves, but uh, amazing integrative thinkers, dual social workers, MFTs come out of that place as people like uh, um, Dick Schwartz spent time at, at the IJR, Doug Brenlin, Betty McCune, all, all of my mentors and people that certainly influenced um, a lot of family thinkers. And Chicago was such, I mean, you think of America as the melting pot. There's no greater city to me than a melting pot than Chicago. So what an amazingly clinically rich time. So what you're known for uh, uh, being multiculturalism, working with uh, Latino families, that is really the origin of this. Because the field at that time, I mean, it was so brand new that this idea working with underserved populations, which, you know, feels like social work was kind of built in. But for MFT, you know, when you see your classic films, your structural and strategic films, they're usually working the uh, middle class, white uh, family systems. And obviously Sal's work was pioneering and the stuff that you were doing, I mean, you, you obviously saw a need to address uh, different populations and start to do this multicultural work. Tell, tell us about the origin of that. Well, you know, the, the location of IGR is a very important place, and it, and it tells something about context. We did not, you're completely correct, we did not see uh, middle-class families, perhaps sometimes a lower middle-class family, but it was in the west side of Chicago, and it was, you know, free services for the Cook County, and and it was, you know, part of, of, of a setting of institutions that were in a poor neighborhood. So, you know, we saw basically, you know, underprivileged families uh, that were Latino, you know, whites, poor whites, and, and blacks. And so I have videotapes of those period where I was seeing all, all those, you know, families. And so it wasn't, my concentration at that time wasn't necessarily Latinos, was, was poverty. You know, it was, it was contextual. And so, but the other part that was extraordinary, and I wish that today we would continue that tradition, was all of the sessions were videotaped. So all of the teaching was very clinical and very applied, and you could see what therapists did. And I remember that Harry, I, I don't know if at that time, was it in a conference or 
or there I asked uh, Harry Aponte, who I had met, like, how do you, how did you learn to do this? Because at that time there weren't, you know, there weren't teachers. There were people were the pioneers in the field, and he said, you know, I sit down with my videotapes and I watch them a minimum of 10, 11 times. And I always ask myself, what could I have done different? What I could have asked that I didn't ask? And then I went to the next session and I did that. So it was very, very self-taught. And so we had a, a, a tremendous advantage of having those videotapes possibilities. And we had a great IT group working with us. You know, like, you know, I met Jill Metcalf at the time and she was doing a lot of our videotape work. And, um, and I also started writing there. Yeah. Uh, talk, t- talk to us about, like you mentioned, all these great names. Harry has been a guest on the podcast. It was such a furtive environment. When you think of other strong females at that time, because you really are on this wave of pioneers, what, uh, what females did you have connection with and look up to at this time? Uh, well, you know, Virginia Satir was in town. She was part of a group called Oasis. So I took some workshops there and I volunteered to be in parts of the role play so that I could really feel, uh, you know, how the experiential aspects that she was, that she was demonstrating. Um, I met from a Walsh who was also in HD and I think it was uh, very important because she and I and Jill Metcalf, who was a social worker at the time and became a photographer later on, we created a little uh, uh, writing group. And that's how we started to look at each other's writings and critique it. We met once a month. And, you know, if I have something to pass on to students, I always tell them, you have to write your experiences. When I traveled, you know, in Latin America or other places, and I say to people, you know, you really have to, to write what you are thinking, even if you don't publish it, because it becomes clear that way. And it also, you're not always absorbing. Uh, the literature that comes from white middle class uh, literature uh, because we then try, tend to impose that in other contexts where it may apply or it may not apply. So I think I didn't, you know, when you ask about other females, I don't know, uh, Monica McGolrick at that time uh, had um, was writing a book on the family life cycle. And because I was working already with a large Latino population, because I'm bilingual and bicultural in many ways, so, and I think she approached me uh, to see whether I would write a chapter on the family life cycle of Latino families. And I decided to accept it. That was the late 1970s. And I think that probably was one of the first things that I started writing about. It's interesting because when I think of you, I mean, this is the, I have been fortunate enough to meet most of the people that I look up to. It's the first time we have talked kind of standard in uh, the training programs I was involved in and in my training programs I teach are those, these two books that I certainly connect with you right away, which is Latino families and therapy, but also family transitions, continuity and change over the life cycle. So those, that, that early life cycle work was inspired by Monica first reach, reaching out to you, huh? Yes, yes. And also by my, you know, being steeped in, in human development. Because human development is, as a program, it takes every stage of the life cycle and then looks at every stage from a cultural and developmental point of view. So 
I was ready for, for that invitation. But I do have a lot to thank to Monica about the fact that she then continued to invite me to write in, uh, you know, in her books on ethnicity and, and family therapy which became so popular. Yes, and she was an amazing guest on the show as well. You've, you've brushed paths with so many uh, luminaries. Now, because you have been in the field since really its, its origin, how do you think family therapy has changed as it pertains to cultural awareness since you entered the profession? Because, I mean, you have seen it uh, certainly grow, and, and what you start as a pioneer on now is is hopefully built into our our training standards and and the way we uh, professionally raise family therapists, so to speak. What are the biggest changes you've seen? Well, you know, perhaps the biggest ones are that people are, have a greater awareness of these issues. But if I go back to how we started and where it took me, I don't know how much, you know, it's very hard to know, Eli, how much people read one's work. I'm always surprised when people say, I read this or I read that, because they don't necessarily tell you, you know, you don't necessarily know. So I think at the beginning we had an ethnic-specific approach, and that the the book I just mentioned, Ethnicity and Family Therapy, uh, is... you know, and had many additions, was an opening uh, to learning about the possibility that people have different belief systems, different um, constructions of reality, different uh, worldviews. But in 1983, I edited a small book, a very small book, uh, I don't know, 120 pages, titled Cultural Perspectives in Family Therapy with a different approach that defined culture as more multidimensional that included race, gender, rural, urban, migration, language, religion. And this little book is out of print. But I invited several people, also probably, you know, big name. And uh, Jay Lappin uh, had an article uh, there that speaks about the way to know about cultural preferences is with curiosity and respect. Today, you know, this was 1983, but today people are constantly using the idea of curiosity and respect. It's a big change and a good change. Uh, Braulio Montalvo and Manuel Gutierrez uh, have a terrific chapter in that little book on using culture as a mask that covers up inequality, social inequality. Uh, Guillermo Bernal has an article on class using the differences between urban and rural families. I have an article called The Shifting Family Triangle, Questioning triangles, which is very much at the core of understanding lots of things in structural family therapy, by showing how meaning varies when you include culture and context. So it really was a different way of thinking about culture as much more complicated, nuanced, and socially constructed than just a list of ethnic value differences. And I think then say, you know, um, what is... uh, Monica, you probably remember, know this. Um, re-envisioning? Yeah, re-envisioning. Culture. Right, yes. yes. It, that is a much more 
uh, uh, you know, current example of how we're thinking. As you probably know, in 1995, I wrote an article in Family Process titled Training to Think Culturally. And here I be- began my work uh, with integrating migration-specific inquiries and clinical practices. You know, for example, the impact of family separations or family acculturation stressors, uh, because I felt that most of what we had been writing about culture did not include the enormous cultural transition of migration. And I, I you know, I call this framework MECA uh, for a multi I wish I had a simpler, you know, <laughs> you know, rather than multidimensional ecosystemic comparative approach. But um, but it represented something that I deeply believed in and now, you know, that that we're all very much creatures of our social context, that that's what family therapy always represented, and, and, and that we not only have to take into account cultural diversity, but also sociopolitical context. And MECA really encompasses both, you know, a cultural diversity and social justice. And I expand a lot more on that on the second edition. But, you know, the difference also, Eli, today is that we, I think we're recognizing that therapists are, that the therapy encounter is not culturally neutral. That the therapist has, comes in with its own maps that comes from professional training, uh, the, the values of, of our profession that makes us similar in many ways, and also personal, that your personal upbringing, bringing that is also cultural, and what you acquired along your life. So, but you know, people talk about that now, today, and which is great. Uh, but many times they don't really know how to look at their own culture or their own, you know, profession. So I think Mecca provides that because the comparative part of it is about using the same universal dimensions without the content uh, that uh, allows you to compare yourself with your clients. No, I, I love all of that. And again, it's all captured in the book in its second edition now. But if we are trying to like distill, because a lot of times people like to listen to the podcast and they want to leave it with some skills. So I know we're both clinical trainers. And sometimes when I train professionally young therapists, if they are working with a client or a system with a different ethnicity or cultural experience, they they don't want to offend. So they don't they don't mention it at all. And, and that is, I think, as a supervisor and a trainer, a big missed opportunity to learn, to be curious, to be respectful. So what are some skills, some tips you would give to how MFTs, maybe in from the dominant culture, can increase their cultural awareness in their work? So some specific cultural awareness, skill building techniques that you could leave our listeners with, Celia. Well, I mean, it's hard to give, you know, formulas, but I think in Mecca, I look at four things. One is if the family has any migration experiences, you know, which could just simply be relocation by, you know, it's like if you deal with a family that is not an immigrant, you still have transitions that have to do with context. And then you look at where they live right now. What is their context? What is their neighborhood? Where is uh, where are uh, their issues with you know whether they have what's happening in their neighborhoods? Uh, are they they have housing? Do they have um, any kind of resources? What kind of community they live in? And then I look and and I would consider that understanding more uh, the, the social 
context of families. And the other two things that I always look at is what and at what stage of the family life cycle are they? Do they have young children? Do they have are they elderly people? Do they live in three generational settings? And then how are they organized? Are they organized in family organization and collectivistic settings? Are they large families? Are there small families? And so I look at those four things that you study by reading what I write. But I go in always with a both-and attitude that I know a little bit, knowing meaning knowing that I have to explore these issues, but I also keep the openness of not knowing, that I have to ask about those things that I don't have to assume. Um, you know, you're right, but, but I would say about the fact that people are not so good at asking if they are inhibited because of their youth or their lack of experience. But at the same time, if you uh, go back to your previous session and say, I've missed some of the things I wanted to explore, it wouldn't be wrong to say to the family, now I've been thinking about you, and I realize that I haven't asked you if religion plays a role in your sense of hope or in your faith and uh, you know, what's the role of that? Uh, or you could even just say it is an important aspect to me or it's, n- it's not so important and that's why maybe I missed it. So it is part of creating a relationship with your clients. And, you know, it humanizes you to ask. And, and it, it is not correct in many ways to assume an expert role rather than the not knowing one. As long as you can be curious and come from a good place and the kind of therapeutic contract is to, to help. So you're asking to understand. And yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I always ask, especially when it's a culture that I don't know about or if I've worked with clients before, I don't assume that all clients from that ethnic group or that background do it the same way. So, I mean, yeah, being curious is the way to go. However, some young clinicians, they don't want to offend. And I think when you're coming from a place of care, from therapeutic care, it's it's not offensive to ask a client system about their background, especially if you don't know anything about it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you ask me um, something ab- about... Uh, skills. And I think one of the things that has happened, and I hopefully is getting corrected over time, um, it even in, you know, the first edition of the Latino uh, book, which came out when 1998, um, I make a differentiation between cultural diversity and social justice, because they get often they get very conflated. And I think the skills needed to work with cultural diversity are different than the ones, you know, they overlap. But they're different. Oh, please uh, highlight that for us because I couldn't agree more. And you're right. Those often get confused or mixed together. Yes. Yeah. Well, when we talk about cultural diversity, we talk about values, beliefs, uh, meaning differences. uh, And they're usually tied to being responsive to issues of ethnicity, religion, nationality. And when it comes to the clinical practices, you have to start thinking about things like theory transformation. You know, uh, meaning if your values are more collectivistic rather than individualistic, well, we have to um, 
say something about, you know, I just recently, I just give you a very quick example. Just recently in the clinic where I work, um, one of the women came to talk about, one of the Latino women talking about how desperate she was about the fact that her daughter was, uh, was spending a lot of time outside in the street with other kids and she was very, very worried about it. And she was being interviewed in a, in a, in a health, uh, setting where the psychiatrist wanted, wanted very kindly to help her. But she kept on talking about the daughter and about her concerns about the daughter. And then the psychiatrist says, you know, you should stop talking about your daughter. You really need to talk about yourself, about how to take care of yourself through this. And, uh, you know, she had, he came from a place of self-care or of uh, which was not completely incorrect, but it was ignoring the fact that the main concern was the family for this person, was the impact of this daughter on everybody. So that requires some sense of theory transformation, you know, uh, that you come in with a set of techniques that comes from an individual approach to working with people. And he, he needed to have more accommodation to cultural differences, and that's cultural diversity, with curiosity, with respect about, you know, what this, what the impact of this was on, on the mother. And if you go to the social justice side, we need to talk about contextual stressors tied to power differences, uh, to gender, to race, to class, and what it requires in terms of clinical practices, using the client's local knowledge, of which most of the time therapists know less about, is to empower people to have voice when it's not dangerous to have voice, to have cultural resistance to discrimination, to address oppressive practices, always thinking into account what is what the person is willing or able to do. So they are different approaches to, to clinical practice. And I think that is where the field is going now. Oh, wonderfully said. And I, I think you've embody that because you have this very right structural background and you talk about being influenced, captivated by Mnuchin, but this very postmodern client is expert to their own experience uh, frame, framework too. So I feel like you've been able in your own work, in your own writing, been able to marry those two things that are beautiful about our field. What do you think we need to do to keep this momentum going, especially in this these crazy times we're living in now, uh, as far as to keep evolving and being curious and having this multicultural perspective? What should happen next? If we, we look back in this interview in 10 or 15 years, what would you like to say that the next evolution of this is? Uh, you know, I think that what has happened with COVID-19 and the disproportionate effects on, uh, on poor people, uh, people of color, uh, I think that we are, that we need to look, first of all, about the fact that class has a color. But that, and the color is brown and black. But but it's also poor whites, you know. And we have ignored that. Uh, social class is still largely ignoring our writing and our explicit interventions. Um, you know, it's interesting that I'm often invited to speak by social workers who are at the front line of understanding class inequity. The, and who are terrific at investigating the impact of, of these issues by drawing eco maps 
And I think we need to understand that there is a very high emotional and developmental price for merely getting by in life with food, housing, uh, you know, something that actually narrows mental bandwidth. And, uh, you know, there's this book called Scarcity, Why Having Too Little Means So Much. And I think we need to look at those things, a perpetually tired brain of dealing, how to put food on the table, how to put gas in the car, one paycheck away from homelessness. It is very difficult on families. And so... We also do not have enough minority faculty, not enough bicultural, bilingual therapists. There's a lot of politics and organizations where we all kind of think alike, but where people turn against each other critically to the detriment of using their strengths to fight the real enemies outside. So I think, you know, in this very more, I know it's very difficult to do what I'm saying, but um, but I feel that we need to begin to look at that more clearly. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't say it any better. You'll have no argument for me on that. Now, it is amazing, like in doing this podcast series, interviewing pioneers for the last three years, there's these common factors, these therapist factors, everybody that's doing this. It's not because they're doing it because they, they still need to. They're not doing it for the money. They are still so passionate and listening to you uh, this last 40 minutes or so. It, that is so clear to me. So what does a typical kind of work week look like now? You are still at the University of California, San Diego, and you've been there for a long time. Currently, how, how do you remain so passionate about this work and, and still clinically active as well in addition to writing? What's your driving force now at this stage of your career? Uh, well, you know, I read a lot. And I read newspapers, and I read books that uh, about real people's experiences. I would like you know students to do that, and because they're very inspiring, you know, reading a book like Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy, or uh, J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Allergy, or uh, old books like Barbara Ehrenreich's Nickel and Dime, uh, Matthew Dine, this one, Evicted. I think those are very inspiring books uh, about real experiences. I can go on and tell you uh, more of them, you know, old and new. And uh, so, um, and... Uh, I draw my inspirations from many things. You asked me before about uh, what are some skills that that young therapist should have. So there is a, a poem by a, a black woman poet, Pat Parker, uh, that says, if you want to be my friend, the first thing you do is to forget that I'm black. And the second thing that you must never forget is that I'm black. So I feel that... Um, uh, that I do that in my current work, that I never forget that I work with a very impoverished Latino immigrant population, but I also connect very much with our shared humanity, you know, with the universals that are the bridges of human connectedness, like raising children, getting ill and dying, been, being uh, fearful of things getting worse. I think that that kind of human connection keeps me going and also young people. So I work in a setting that is all medical students from first year to fourth year that have either as a, as an elective or as something they've decided to do on their own, uh, is that they will become doctors, uh, medical doctors in medicine for the underserved. 
and they are tremendously inspiring. I have a great trust in the in the next generation, and you know I also get inspired by my daughters on that. And I think working not in the isolated environment of the private practice, which is inspiring in its own way because you connect with people's you know pain and people's hopes and people's resilience and. But at this, you know, having an environment that is very committed, let's say committed, uh, to caring for others, that the important thing is patient care. Uh, that's keeps me going. Well, it's, it's your beautifully said, it's your direct contact still with these client systems. It's also your continue lifelong learner reading, not just about psychotherapy, but all these outside kind of related disciplines or inspiration from stories. And it's your interaction with these med students, these still the young people that inspire you. So, I mean, to me is how you, you keep doing it and doing it for the right reasons. Now, you know, we've learned a little bit about, you just mentioned your, your daughter. It's also interesting when I've done these interviews that Many times, like you, you said, you're always amused and flattered when somebody has read your work because you don't know who reads it or not. Many times people's family of origin have no idea. They just know you as, as a, a loving family member or a hard worker, but they have really no idea about your contribution to the field. So what does your family of origin back in Argentina and your family here in the States, what do they know and think about your contributions to our field of family therapy? Oh, what an interesting question. I never haven't thought about it. Yeah, I know. Uh, But what came to mind first, and, you know, sort of, I I do admire Buddhism too. And so I would say, Buddhists say first thought, best thought. So I tell you what my first thought was. But when I became the president of the American Family Therapy Academy, I invited my brother, who was in Miami. And we were at the presidential table, my three girls and and my brother, my husband had died already. And so and so we, you know, everybody said some something, uh, you know, some congratulations. And my brother uh, got up with his champagne or something and said, you know, I never knew this aspect of my sister. What I knew always, and I'm, I'm the older sister, and uh, was that she was always there for me. That when I called her, no matter how she, busy she was, I knew she was busy, she had a very busy life, but she always had time for me. And that's what makes her kind of my president. So, you know, that was so touching, so touching to me that I, that's really what I think my family and my sister feels the same way. She doesn't know what I do necessarily. Uh, she knows that I'm a family therapist. Uh, perhaps they know that I have worked a lot with immigrant Latino populations, but, but that's about it. I go back to Argentina every year or every other year. And of course, my parents are, uh, are no longer alive and none of my extended family, my grandparents, my uncles. Now I have a younger uh, a group, you know, the, of some cousins that are still alive and, and nephews. I used to go invited uh, and always try to combine the personal and the professional on those trips. And I realized 
that I needed to do less of that because what I was doing was connecting with a group that would be my reference of what would have happened to me if I had remained in Argentina. So, so when I was talking about the internal traveling that people do, when you also pass, you know, move from one socioeconomic class to another or, or a, an educational class to another, you have a transition. And so I think I was imagining what it would have been like if I remained in Argentina and became a psychologist there or a family therapist there, which family therapy is very strong in Argentina. Uh, but now, you know, in the later years, I just want to see my cousins and I want to see my nieces and my nephews. So I go for weddings, I go for special events. It's this weird paradoxical feeling to have warm feelings about your family unit, how you were raised, but being so thankful that you left to kind of contrasting feelings but uh it's clearly influenced uh, who you are and the way you work and your brother's tribute those are your best qualities your 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 self of therapist your clinician qualities that he didn't need to really know the specifics what you've done or how you've impacted the field he just knew you were a good and caring thoughtful person and that and here's the last question you are so accomplished but also so humble so this would be a hard question for you now that you think of this you know, at this stage of your career, you know, if, if you have any goals left, I'm curious where there are, but the, the legacy question, how do you want to be remembered in the field of family therapy the most? Oh, I don't know. My first, my first thought was about something about the young people that I'm interacting with. So because they're the people who inspire me now. I just wrote an article working with under-resourced uh, Latinx immigrants during COVID-19 with two wonderful young women. You know, one is a narrative therapist, the other is an emotionally focused family therapy. So, and I learned from them. Uh, we are all, the three of us are committed to social equity and see our work as psychosocial empowerment of clients. Both of them are volunteers at the clinic, uh, at the free community health clinic. So, so I want to continue to help the development of caring health and mental health practitioners. And into, you know, and when it comes to the practice of medicine for the underserved, I would like to help integrate the mental health community as equal partners more. Um, so, you know, working with under-resourced families that not really patch up the ills of an unjust society. Uh, what matters is true policy change. But meanwhile, one, uh, one cannot just observe human suffering without doing something about it. So I think I heard this from Carl Whitaker a long time ago, that it was a Zen saying, you cannot get it by trying, but you cannot not try. So maybe I'd like to be remembered by that. Um, and I have seen in our field the creation of many schools of family therapy over time, each claiming to cover all the fronts. The truth, in my opinion, is that there is no silver bullet. There is no magic formula. There is a danger of the single story in the field, like in the idea of culture. So I think I would like to be remembered by thinking about issues that encompass all of us in similar and in different ways. Perhaps that is the message of Mecca. It is not a single story about culture or about context. I don't know. Does that answer 
the question. Oh, yeah, so beautifully done. I have so thoroughly enjoyed this. And if, if people want to know more about Mecca, they can find uh, everything you mentioned and a whole lot more in Latino Families in Therapy in the second edition, right? That would be the best place to go to learn about the model, right? You're also, I mean, so wonderful to dialogue with and so uh, prompt in, in your feedback. I don't know how you get all of this stuff done, but a lot of times our listeners were like, oh, I couldn't possibly reach out to so-and-so. I've read their work and I admire them so much. But if, if people wanted to drop you a line after they listen to this interview or correspond with you, what's the easiest way to reach you, Celia? My email? Yes. Okay. So C. Falikov. You know how to spell my name? Yes, I will have it in the link, but you can spell it for everybody. Go ahead. C. Uh, as in Celia, F for uh, for flower, A L I C O V as in Victor. At health. Dot UCSD for University of California San Diego. Dot edu. Wonderful. I have enjoyed and, this and so much. And I am much. actually quite prompt. You are. You are. I told I'm because, telling you, you are. Otherwise, otherwise, I forget. So I'd rather just do things when they come. And, so. and you are a master of another way to stay current. And maybe this is because you read a lot or you keep yourself around all these young medical students. But I feel like you've adapted the technology as well. I mean, you have some people, they learn a certain way of doing it. And then they get to a certain age or especially in our COVID times, they're like, well, I'm not going to learn this or I learned that. I think another thing that has kept you current is you've adapted uh, to the current technologies and everything we use. But it was uh, a pure joy to, to talk to you. And I couldn't imagine uh, completing this Pioneer series without having you a part of it. You must be a good therapist. Nobody ever realized what you just said, but you're absolutely <laughs> correct. Yeah. I, yes, yes. I even just taught myself how to do a complicated uh, spreadsheet the other day. So, you know, and I, I get I get some pride out of keeping up with what's happening, even though I'm an old woman. So. No, that is why you're so vital and, and yeah. such, a, okay. such a force in the field. It's so great talking to you. Eli, back with you. So brings to a close another installment of the AAMFT podcast. And one of my favorite parts, the Pioneer series, and truly a pioneer, a female pioneer in systemic thinking, diversity, multiculturalism, Celia Falikov. I really appreciated my time with her and so humble and, and so vital. And I told you one of these common factors of the pioneers that chronologically uh, may be senior in our field, but they, what keeps them young and Fresh is their ability to adapt. Celia told you about her love of, of reading, consuming knowledge. Technologically is up to speed and then some. I mean, I, I love being able to hear these stories and connecting the past. So if you listen to that, maybe you heard about the Institution of Ju Juvenile Research, IJR, for the first time. Or you made the connection with all the great family therapists coming out of Argentina or what was going on in the sociopolitical landscape of the time. Thank you again, Celia, and please check out all of her works. One that we mentioned in the interview that I think holds the test of time, especially if you like cycle type of work, as she mentioned, Family Transitions, Continuity and Change Over the Life Cycle, which came out some 30 years ago now, but still a, a classic in the field and certainly worth checking out in addition to those other publications we mentioned. All right, 
here at the podcast. We are always emerging and coming up with new ideas, listening to listener feedback here in our third season. I am uh, so happy to announce uh, one of the feedback is, hey, is there a video version of the podcast? You know, we've heard your voice and heard you interview these people, but uh, some of us are more visual and we'd like to see it. Well, AMFT and I have partnered together to bring you the AMFT podcast live series starting in March, coming up soon, uh, featuring the authors from the Handbook of Systemic Family Therapy, which is a groundbreaking reference work on both the profession and the practice of systemic family therapy. The who's who in our field nationally and internationally, which is a focus of this four-part series. We are going to really focus on family therapy around the world, especially with underserved populations. These are live, and you want to go to aamft.org to register. Eventually, they will be in our traditional audio podcast form, but you want to get in on this groundbreaking live in real time podcast. We'll start on March 5th. They're on Fridays from 11 to 12. Eastern Time. We're going to be talking with Gwen Daniel about families in chronically unsafe environments. On March 19th, we'll be talking to Lori Charles and Salia Bava about systemic family therapy and global mental health, reflections on professional development and training. And uh, later on in April, talking to Mudita Rostogi about how to have a systemic conceptualization and interventions with families in this global context. And finally, concluding the series on April 16th, with Corey Yeager and Carlin Tishner on working with African-American client systems. So I'm so excited to bring this to you. As always, we rely on your listener feedback to drive the show and help us rise among the ranks of the Mental Health Podcast. Please find us wherever you download your favorite podcast. I'm at partial to Apple Podcasts, but you can find us on Spotify, Stitcher. I really appreciate a leaving a star rating and a review. If you want to get a hold of me, it's easy. Go to elikaram.com. It's K-A-R-A-M. Or you can drop me a line, Eli at North Star Counseling Center. The AMFT is, of course, at aamft.org where you can find out the latest and greatest in what's going on in the world of systemic therapy. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Eli Live, and the AMFT is simply at the AAMFT. So whether it's Twitter, email, going to the website, we'd love to hear from you. Stay safe, and until next time, my friends, stay systemic. <laughs>